This is Full Disclosure, where I have a very special live guest for you. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. The Full Disclosure show is all about the guests, so you're not going to hear much from me tonight. I'm going to be able to ask questions. If you want to know what Mike's opinions are about things, you can always tune in to any of the other playlists on this channel, but I encourage you to subscribe. Known for his writings on the anti-moral revolution of the 1960s, capitalism and usury, the history of the Catholic Church, its relation to other world religions, and the wider cultural issues, our guest really needs no introduction. Dr. E. Michael Jones is an American writer, former professor, Catholic commentator, and editor of Culture Wars magazine. Culture Wars. I want, you to, do th I want to do three things tonight with Dr. Jones, and we're really pleased that he joined us to do that. I want to first give you a chance to meet... EMJ. So we're going to ask a couple questions just about who he is in case, the, in the unlikely point of view, that one of you is out there that has not met him yet. The second thing I want to do is zero in on this book right here, which is besides me, Logos Rising, and some of the other current uh, stuff that uh, Dr. Jones has just published. And then finally, I'm going to do a lightning round of Q&A. Literally, we're going to go quickly through some questions. I'm going to take your live questions as well. So hopefully I've got a moderator in the chat tonight so we can do that. If not, I've got a bunch queued up that a bunch of you have sent me already. So we're going to hear Dr. Jones's thoughts on all things from Russia to the Latin mass to COVID-1984 to all kinds of things. Uh, so let's get started. Uh, without further ado, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Dr. Jones. Really a thank pleasure. you. Pleasure to be here. Um, so part one, part one is, is, is all about you. Um, I know that you were raised Catholic. I know you were baptized Catholic. Uh, but like so many young adults, including <clears throat> yours truly, you lost your faith in your mid-20s. You were brought back, though, Dr. Jones, by Thomas Merton, I think. Um, what was so profound about that experience in reading Merton? And did that influence what you chose to do with your life later on? And then what advice can you give to young people today who maybe are struggling with the same thing? Well, the circumstances were kind of unusual. I had just been hired as a, an English teacher in Germany and uh, the state had just taken over what was a formerly a uh, convent school run by a, a order of nuns. And uh, they were cleaning out the library. And it turns out there was one library, uh, one book in the library that was in English, and it was The Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton. So the nun gave it to my friend. This my friend was uh, teaching me uh, German at the time. Uh, we ended up being in a band together for a couple of years. Uh, but he basically, it was like one of those moments out of uh, St. Augustine where someone comes up to you and says, tole lege, uh, or in this, in this instance, Nims Lises, uh, take it and read it. And I took it, and at that moment, I think it was the right moment to, to read it because I, I, I had, uh, I, as you mentioned, I had uh, fallen away from the faith at that point, and God uh, had to get me out of Philadelphia uh, and give me some uh, insight into the church as a, a more universal construct. Mm -hmm. And it was Merton who kind of introduced me to that. Uh, Merton was a literary man. I aspired to be a literary man. I was in Germany because I felt I had failed as a literary man. Uh, and I felt that, well, if, if he did it, I mean, he's much better at it than I am. And if he believes in God, well, I guess I should too. Uh, but it was also an understanding of what God was, which is something I wasn't. It was kind of the opposite of me. It was somebody who could say it, and it happened, and I was talking, and nothing was happening. So it was all those things taken together that, that uh, propelled me back into the church, 
And then uh, my wife, uh, our son was two years old at that time, hadn't been baptized yet. So we had him baptized and she became a Catholic all at the same time. Lots of complications involved in that, but uh, that's the short, the short story. Your time as a professor at St. Mary's uh, College of Notre Dame, Indiana, this is a feeder school to Notre Dame, uh, was tragically cut short. Um, you have described it, I want to get the quote right, as the antithesis of what a Catholic college should be in that it was all, you know, it was pro-choice, it was feminist, it was liberal, it was secular. Dr. Jones, I've heard you talk extensively about the Land O'Lakes schism in which higher education in the Catholic world um, separated itself from the magisterium of the Catholic Church. And uh, that, that information is all out there, and people can watch that on, on any other channel. My question for you, though, in light of all of these things, really it's two. It's one personal question, and then it's one question of advice. Personal question is, do you look back at, your, at, at the truncation of your career in higher education and say, you know, really this was a grace because it enabled you uh, to do um, things that you, uh, you know, on your own that you otherwise might not have been able to do? And then secondly... Uh, what do you tell parents who are grappling with this this situation in higher education? Do I send my kid to college? Which college is safe, et cetera? Um, to answer that question, no college is safe. I don't think uh, we, we've. Uh, but to to get to the first question, um, yeah, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. But uh, it didn't seem that way at the time, and that's that's part of the. Uh, the duality of life, uh, because there was a long, a year, I basically got fired in the fall and had to go through to the spring with no prospect. I just moved my family out there. We had just bought a house. Uh, I had no prospect of earning a living, didn't know what to do and had to live with that uncertainty for a year or almost a year. Uh, and, uh, to get through that, you need faith because you just, you just can't see where you're going because that's the darkness uh, and you can't even see uh, in front of you. You can't even see three, three, three steps in front of you. You don't know what's going to happen, and you think the world's going to end. But the, 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 what you realize is that God had a plan. God has a plan for your life. And it turns out that it's a, a better fulfillment of your life than you thought that you could do by yourself. So to get back to Thomas Merton, I always aspired to be a writer and then I thought, well, I'll never make a living. I have a child to support now. I'll never make a living doing that. I guess I have to become a teacher. And I was qualified. I got the job, got the PhD, got the job, and then I got fired. Uh, so the only job I was ever qualified for, I got fired from. But I ended up being what I wanted to be at the beginning. So this is something you should keep in mind when you're going through some type of period of darkness, you know, because there's a plan out there. And lots of times you just have to stick it out uh, and find out what the plan is when God lets you know rather than when you want to know. But the other part of it is that basically academia is a complete disaster, and I saw it coming, and I would have wasted my time fighting a losing battle. That battle was over by the time I got there. If you read the end of Logos Rising, if you read the last cha couple chapters, yeah. Uh, you'll understand what I'm talking about, because uh, <clears throat> Notre Dame across the street had basically uh, strangled uh, Logos in its cradle in the New mm -hmm. World. Logos mm -hmm. had come over through the French Thomas, uh, Etienne Gilson and uh, Jacques Maritain. Uh, they established the Maritain Institute at Notre, at Notre Dame in 1953. 
They made uh, Thomism the official philosophy of the Notre Dame philosophy department. Everything was great. And then they, they ruthlessly destroyed it. Two wicked men, uh, Erna McMullen and Theodore Hesburgh, collaborated on this murder. And Notre Dame is suffering the consequences to this day, to yeah. this day. Yeah. When you say, doctor, that uh, there's no, nowhere is safe for your children to go, um, you know, I, I mean, can we, can we just zoom in on that just for, for a second? I mean, there are a lot of Catholic parents out there who are maybe not even considering the trades. Is that what you're referring to? Or are you saying, you know, literally just, just go to a secular school because what's the difference at this point? Why pay private tuition to a pseudo-Catholic school? Uh, going to us, uh, I had to face this decision myself. I have five children. And uh, 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 the oldest went to Harvard. Uh, that wasn't a particularly happy experience. Uh, one, uh, two of my children went to IU and majored in languages, and I think that was a better experience. Uh, classics at IU, Indiana University, yeah. was a better experience than uh, some type of pseudo-Catholic education in a place like Notre Dame because it's just too bewildering. It is too bewildering for an 18-year-old to show up at a place like Notre Dame, which calls itself Catholic and then subverts the faith in all sorts of ruthless yeah. and sophisticated ways. Yeah. So better better off knowing uh, where you stand and, and uh, doing something like uh, Latin and Greek is worth the effort. And uh, it's honest, and uh, you know what you're getting involved in, and uh, you, you're dealing with serious people. Because, you know, it's not, a, a, you know, like uh, what the, the fun, the fraternity. <laughs> when we're looking over the dorms at uh, IU, Indiana University, one of them said, this is the dorm for serious students. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wait a minute, what are the other dorms for? If this is, you only got one for serious students, what are the other dorms for? <laughs> right. Uh, but you do get serious students when you're, when you're uh, studying classics. And so, you know, I think, I think it was successful in that instance. Um, one more question just about you, just to just kind of introduce you to the RTF audience. This is the first time you're on the channel, doctor. Uh, obviously, a lot of people know you've been condemned by so many organizations from, you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center on the alt-left to even to the Catholic League. Um, you you broach controversial subjects, and you do that rather boldly and with honesty, and you and you follow the facts where they lead you. Catholic University of America won't even host you. Um, there are certain taboo—there's a certain taboo to what you say. In fact, you have a book with that title in it that I've read that I really enjoyed— uh, mindful that we're on this big tech live stream right now. Um, that's that's as far as I'll go in describing it. Uh, but I will just let the audience know that your your big book with the title Revolutionary Spirit, I have given that away to priests. They have enjoyed it and it has red pilled them on some of these issues that we can't talk about in the open anymore. But my question is, do you consider that your work in this area to be like integral to to everything else you've done, your wider body of work? Or do you ever look back and lament the fact and say, well, maybe it was a, if by focusing on that particular topic or these this collection of topics, maybe it was a distraction from all the other good that I've done, you know, like, for example, with Logos Rising or with Baron Metal, which I have questions about as well. Um, how do you how do you think about that, doctor? I uh, could not have written Logos Rising unless I wrote I had already written the Jew, the, the revolutionary spirit. Uh -huh. This is funny. This is funny. This is comical. 
But uh, if if that's the way if that's the way it's got to be, it's got to be. So because I said that, uh, uh, what was the? Uh, I had to talk about anti logos uh-huh. before I could talk about logos. And this particular group of people uh, is the force of anti logos in human history. And I could not define that group of people without using the term logos. And so uh, everything I do is built on what I did before. I can't write uh, book number 10 without first writing book number nine. And the same thing is true today. That's been the story of my life. I have to figure something out. Once I figure that out, I can use that as a platform and then go on to figure something else out. Mm -hmm. So as I said, uh, Logos Rising was the history of Logos. And now I'm uh, writing a book on beauty, uh, aesthetics, which I could not write unless I had written Logos Rising. Because the crux of it is this, the fact that uh, beauty is a transcendental and it has some type of ontological uh, source in, in being. So mm-hmm. everything is related to everything else. Couldn't have done it without doing the other books first. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and they do, they do feel sequential. Okay, this is part two of the interview where we're going to get into Logos Rising. Um, I've got it on the, on the table here. I have to confess to you, Doctor, I haven't read the whole thing. It's big. Uh, but I've read a lot of it, the first four chapters uh, in particular, and it was because there's a local uh, book group here where I live in the heart of America that was really, they're describing this 700-year war on reality that we're, that we're experiencing. So I want to get into that. But um, before we get into Lagos Rising, I want to understand Baron Metal for a second, if you'll, if you'll d- permit the detour. And Baron Metal is also available um, on your website. We're just getting to know each other right now as, as, uh, as good Catholics. Um, and you don't, you don't know me very well, doctor. And, and I only know you from YouTube, but just so the audience knows, I'm formally trained in, in finance and accounting. My postgraduate work was in, uh, derivatives and currency and corporate finance. I worked on wall street. I did $4 billion in financing and, and M and a transactions. I do understand that the entire world is built on usury. About eight years ago, I discovered Catholic economics and then I I bought your book, your landmark work, Baron Metal, and you know you've written seventeen hundred pages about Catholic economics, Doctor. I think if you ask you know ten distributists, let's say what distributism is, you're going to get fifteen different answers. I struggle with this concept. I don't understand. Even after using Baron Metal as a reference, reading Belloc, reading Chesterton, I don't. I just don't have a firm grasp on it. Why is it so hard to wrap your mind around something that should be so simple? And why does it take 1,700 pages to describe what you just used to be normal life for everybody? <clears throat> well, first of all, uh, economics uh, is now defined as a kind of uh, pseudo-physics. This, I, dis- I discussed this in uh, Barron Metal, the Newtonian physics, and then uh, Newton's involvement with currency. Actually, did get involved with uh, the Bank of England and so on and so forth. But basically, over this period of time, Newton's uh, ideology, or whatever you want to call it, was so influential that it influenced uh, just about everything. So Adam Smith uh, basically took uh, gravity and inertia and turned it into self-interest and competition. Uh, But it's basically the model is physics. Now, this is not why Adam Smith got hired. He was hired as a professor of moral philosophy. And moral philosophy right. is the matrix out of which we study. We should be studying uh, economics because economics comes down to the fundamental 
issue is one person who has something to sell and another person has something to buy. And in a, in a situation like this, the stronger will always be tempted to take advantage of the weaker. And uh, that's why it's economics. That is the fundamental basis of this. And uh, you don't study that. That's, that's defunct. That's not part. Yeah. No one describes it that way. Now, the, the second issue is distributism. It's not really an adequate introduction into what would be called Catholic economics. You got two guys, two English journalists, uh, God bless them, you know, Catholics in a completely hostile environment, and they're trying to make the best of it. But in a sense, neither of them was qualified to talk about economics. Now, I know this sounds weird coming from a guy who uh, basically majored in English literature, <laughs> sure. who just wrote a 1,400-page book on economics. But it's the reason, the, the, the sense of relief I got came from the beginning of uh, reading Heinrich Pesch's Lehrbuch der Nationalökonomie. Which you can only read that in the, in, in the, the German, correct? That's not available in no, English? No, it is available. There's a translation. Uh, Rupert Editor, whose work I published in Culture Wars, made it his life's work to translate Pesch into uh, English. And unfortunately, he went with a publisher who created an edition that no one will ever buy because it cost, it'll cost you $1,300 to buy wow. the book. Wow. This, I don't know. Why did Rupert not ask me to publish it? I would have happily published this thing. He never even told me about this. Uh, I don't know. It's one of the mysteries of life. But, but anyway, uh, you know, you start reading Pesh, and Pesh makes it clear that this is a branch of philosophy. Well— I suddenly felt relieved. I mean, if he had started off and told me I have to study derivatives before I have to can talk about economics, I would have closed the book right then and there and walked away. But that's not the case. It is moral philosophy, and Pesh is the guy who situates this in the context of moral philosophy and makes it comprehensible. Now, I had the book, uh, the book that no one will ever buy because it's too expensive. I have a copy of it. And I thought, can I borrow it? <laughs> you know, people are calling me up. Uh, a guy from Poland is doing his doctoral dissertation on Pesh, and he wants me to make a PDF of this th uh, ten-volume book. Mm. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay, so I said you can come over here and uh, rent a room in South Bend, Indiana. You can come and read it here. Because, but I'm not going to do that. But, I mean, this this is the problem here. Mm -hmm. We got a problem of a uh, uh, the the locus classicus. And nobody can get it. No one has a copy. D Rupert had to spend uh, a lot of time just scouring Germany after World War II to find original copies in, in, uh, in German because uh, one of the, uh, the main goals of the Allied army in Germany was to destroy German culture. And they did it by destroying libraries. And Pesch was one of the, the victims. You add that to the Anglophilia and basically the Whig orientation of American economics and culture yeah. in general, yeah. and nobody knows about it. So this is why, given that, I decided I'll write a book, and it's going to be based on Pesh, but it's going to be my understanding of Pesh applied to the history of economics, and that's what Baron Metal is. You, um, you have spoken about the Anglo connection uh, within atheism, and you've pieced something together that I've never heard anyone else piece together. Basically, you've married Newtonian cosmology, 
Smithian economics, Darwinian evolution, and those three kind of combined to create what. Um, now I know, uh, Doctor, that you are you're you're part German, part Irish. I'm part Irish, part Spanish. So both of us have beef with the Anglo's, right? Uh, and that's plenty of reason alone to pick on the, the the Brits. But what is it about British culture that has led to the, these developments and thoughts? And why you know why did Bertrand Russell burst on the scene, for example? What is it about British culture that would produce a guy like that? William of Ockham. I think that the short answer to that question is William of Ockham. He had a had a, a disastrous effect on thought in Europe. Uh, you, it's hard to imagine the catastrophic effect that William of Ockham had. Uh, I mean, to, to give you the prime example, it would be Martin Luther. Mm-hmm. Uh, Martin Luther. By, so by the time. Uh, Martin Luther is studying. He's a he's a priest. He's studying as an Augustinian monk. Scholasticism had become Occamism, and Aquinas had, was basically forgotten. He had been forgotten, uh, and all of the 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 work that Aquinas done had done synthesizing faith and reason all came unraveled with William of Ockham, who believed that there didn't believe that universals existed in nature, and so as a result. Uh, there's no, uh, he was a uh, Aquinas would have called him a blasphemer because he said that there he would say that there's no logos in the mind of God, and this led to these devotional mystical tracts like um, the Imitation of uh, Christ. Uh, it was a dark period. I mean, it was just I I had uh, dinner in the building where William of Ockham died. Uh, in Munich. He died of the Black Plague in Munich, and that kind of symbolized the darkness that surrounded William of Ockham. So you add that, add to that the Reformation, uh, which is basically a looting operation, Mm -hmm. and the decapitation of the faith, the ruthless decapitation of the faith that took place in England as a result of that looting operation. And the fact that they're an island and add all these things together and you end up with what I've called the English ideology, which is basically a a fundamentally dishonest uh, manipulation of intellectual life. Summarized, I guess, by Newton's phrase, uh, hypothese non fingo. I frame no hypotheses. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. Mm -hmm. And I tried to talk about how. You know, he took the inverse square law, which is true. I don't think he came up with it. I think he stole it from someone and basically uh, used it to smuggle pagan cosmology back into European thought, uh, specifically the thought of Empedocles. So Empedocles said that the world was based on two forces, love and strife, and Newton turned them into inertia and gravity. Smith turned them into competition and, and, uh, and self-love. And you just had this this repetition, this replication over and over and over again of this right. anti anti logos attitude. And Newton and uh, uh, in, in, in when you get to Darwin, by the time you get to Darwin, you have you know natural selection and survival of the fittest as the forces that dominate the world. And what what do all these things have in common? They are mechanisms. Mm-hmm. They, you put those two, uh, gravity and inertia together, and you get circular motion. And that means the universe functions all by itself. And by the way, uh, you just killed providence. You kissed, killed divine providence and the ability of God to intervene in his own creation. 
And that has had that led to science and that led to people like Richard Dawkins. And I take these people on at the beginning of of Logos Rising. There's completely uh, uh, people who are just so full of themselves and their scientific knowledge that they don't understand that they're making fools out of themselves because they don't know metaphysics. Doctor, uh, you do take on uh, Darwin, especially at the beginning of the book, uh, and and Hawkins, and and all of all of those atheists that follow. One of the distinctions that you make is between being and non-being, and and you really see this with your with your discourse about the eyeball. And um, I wonder if you could maybe just walk people through the, this particular distinction, because the error that Dawkins makes is that. You know, you can have half an eyeball, and that, and right. that that's you know, and 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 and, but but you but you say, well, half an eyeball is still an eyeball, right? Or it's not an eyeball. This is this is the type of thing that uh, so Dawkins, uh, Darwin's big problem was the eye. It's a very complex mechanism, and uh, how does can you have half an eye? Well, wait a minute. If it's half, then it doesn't work as an eye. So then you're confronted with this problem here. This is Christopher Hitchens, the other uh, big, uh, big four of the atheist, uh, new atheist, said, well, it started, it's all evolution. And uh, we had these creatures back then that had light sensitive cells. And obviously, if you've got light sensitive cells, it's only a matter of time because before they become eyeballs. Sure. Well, wait a minute. Let's go back to the light sensitive cell. Can it see or not? If it can see, it's an eye. <laughs> right. Okay. If it can't see, it's not an eye. And it's never going to become an eye because there is no possible way that natural selection can allow it to become that because natural selection is the only way to get through this. Okay. So that fails. You just failed. And nobody noticed because you got this uh, kind of rhetorical smokescreen that you threw up around what you were talking about. Now, Dawkins is faced with the same problem. Okay, and so he comes up with this brilliant idea, he calls it Mount Improbable. And there are two slopes to Mount Improbable. One is very steep and you can't make it up there. You just it's just impossible. But the other side is gradual and you could go little steps. And that's how it happened. It happened by little steps. Well, wait a minute. Each little step is going to be the same as the step we just described. You're going to have to go from non-being to being. Well, you can't do that. Parmenides says that that which is cannot come from that which is not. That is absolutely true. And it's true to this day. And he didn't understand it. And so what he thinks is, oh, well, if we make it really small steps, no one will notice that we're going from non-being to being, which is impossible. And then he comes up with this famous thing. Or say, so it's a gradual process. Mm-hmm. And you can have like a, a, a creature that has 49% of a wing. Right. And 49% is better than nothing at all, right? It's like half a loaf is better than none. Well, wait a minute. If this, whatever it is, allows this creature to fly, then it's a wing. You already had a wing. If yeah. it doesn't allow him to fly, then it's not a wing, and it's not going to become a wing. That's the whole issue here. It's, it comes down to basically a misunderstanding of being because the English are just radically anti-metaphysical. It's that simple. They make a virtue out of it. They <laughs> created this thing called empiricism, British empiricism. Empiricism, right. Lead, leading to logical positivism, which is Bertrand Russell. 
Uh, and they're proud of it. They're proud of being stupid when it comes <laughs> to metaphysics. And uh, uh, the classic example, you mentioned Bertrand Russell. You can go on YouTube, type in Bertrand Russell and Frederick Copleston. This is the Jesuit who did the history of philosophy. That is, in many ways, the best history of philosophy out there. And they end up debating the existence of God. And Russell, I don't want to prejudice you, but you listen. I think Russell just just got trounced in that in that argument. He, he reaches a point where he can't respond to Copleston, and he says, "Well, let's change the subject." And right? Yeah, and you document that in in the in the first part of the book, and you also talk about Doctor. You 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 use this metaphor that I think is so powerful of uh, that that Dawkins and that Russell and that others um, fall into this trap of imagining a train with infinite numbers of passenger cars. And then you say, you say, well, what's pulling this passenger car? Well, it's the passenger car in front of it or whatever, you know, uh, or, uh, but you never actually get to the point of like where, which, where's, where's the engine car? <laughs> and they never get there. Well, they're saying you can have motion as long as you have uh, uh, a lot of boxcars. If you, if you have an infinite string of boxcars, some of something was got to move because that's a lot of, well, no, it's not going to work because the boxcar cannot move. So there has to be some mover that is uh, not a boxcar, and that would be the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover, and that's precisely what uh, the cosmological proof proves, okay? Mm-hmm. You cannot have an infinite regress. Aristotle said that very clearly in the metaphysics, and if you think you can, you're an ignoramus. That's what Aristotle says, and that's precisely what we're dealing with with these, with these Darwinists. You know, let's have it long. Let's have that box, that that train really long. And if it's really long, then it'll start moving. No, that's not the way it works. There's got to be one thing that uh, that moves it. Or the other way around is there's got to be one thing that doesn't move uh, to support like the bridge. You know, you can have a river, you know, you pump away, you got the form. Mm -hmm. If you don't get down to bedrock or something that won't move, you can't build the foundation of the bridge no matter how much cement you have or how many bricks you have or whatever it is, you know, you have to have something that won't move. That's the whole point of that proof. Um, we jumped ahead of ourselves. I wanted to actually introduce the book, and I'm sorry I didn't do that, Doctor. It's really a pleasure to have you on. You've spilled lots of ink uh, in this book. You could say this is a book about the history of Logos. This is the book about the Logos of history. Um, those are two separate concepts and distinct concepts. You you bring those together around the middle midpoint of the book, around chapter five and six. Um, I I just wonder, and maybe this is a question people have, and uh, I have to be the one to ask it. This is a long book as well. A lot of your books are getting long. Who are you writing these books for? Is this is this book written for your common Catholic, or are you yes. writing for other academics? Or no, who, uh, I- why would I write for academics? I've been expelled from the synagogue. I'm I'm use that word, okay? <laughs> uh, I've been expelled from that group of people. This is not for academics. This is for everyone. This is for the. Uh, I, I just, you know, we have get together with uh, breakfast, you know, on Saturday morning with a group of people here, and one of the people here is uh, a 92 year old lady. Yeah. who is the mother of one of uh, the guys there, and she went, had 14 children, and now she's reading Logos Rising. And she liked it. She read the whole thing and said it was a great book. Well, if she, you know, this is the type of people. Where the, I'm, I'm going to give you the education you never got. 
you should have gotten this book. This should have been a textbook in college. And it wasn't because nobody talks about this stuff anymore. And that's the whole point of uh, writing a book like this. It's not definitely not for uh, an academic audience. If there's an academic out there that can point out any error in the book, well, please do so. Mm-hmm. Because that's why you're an academic. But so far, no one's come forward. Um, you you synthesize that with the the word. There's so much behind the word logos, and we as Catholics, you know, especially uh, as as traditional Latin Mass Catholics who hear the Gospel of John at the end of of Mass every time we hear in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was in the in the beginning was the logos. There's so much behind that word logos. Can you give our audience a, a sense of, of wh- how in one sentence, in the first sentence of the fourth gospel, the, the entire history of the world was united, both Jew and Greek, um, in, in that one word, in that one sentence? Well, if you take uh, the, the first sentence of the gospel of John, it's, it's in Greek, it's ein arche, ein halogos, and that's translated, in the beginning there was the word. Uh, and I don't know what that means. I have no idea. I, I, I could listen to that for my entire life and still couldn't figure it out. And you go to Latin, it's not, it's not really different than Latin. In principio erat verbum. In German, am Anfang war das Wort. It's still the same word because there's no word in modern languages that has the depth and reach of the Greek word logos. And I discovered this when I was studying Greek and you look, open the... Uh, the dictionary, and there's column after column of, co- of words that can use to be described lo- uh, the word logos. It is the most important word in the Greek language because it is about the central issue of what it's to be to be a human being, which is rationality. And the history of the word uh, uh, was sanctified by the church because at this point the church had uh, uh, civilization culture world history had reached a crucial turning point and the turning point came when obviously Jesus Christ came on the earth and we got to figure out a way to describe him well the word to use to describe him was logos and it was a greek word so suddenly we're merging this kind of uh, hebrew revelation with Greek philosophy were validating the, the, the legitimacy of that great effort. It was called the miracle, the Greek miracle, that suddenly people without the aid of revelation could come to some type of understanding of God, some type of understanding of ultimate reality on their own, with no help from uh, re- revelation, unlike the Hebrews who did have that revelation. So when you have the, the beginning of the Gospel in John, in beginning there was Logos, uh, it parallels the be- Genesis, which also begins with the word, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So you're talking about a new a new form of, of creation, a new form uh, in which history is going to move forward. Now, I said, now, the, 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 again, we had a crisis here because uh, the Jews rejected Jesus Christ. And as soon as they rejected him, they called for his death, and after his death, uh, they persecuted Christians, and they expelled Christians from the synagogue. And one of those Jews who persecuted Jesus Christ was St. Paul, and then he had his conversion, and he started to go to the synagogues, and he couldn't talk to the people. They expelled him. And so as a result, he had this vision 
of somebody kind of beckoning from across. He was in Antioch. He was Ephesus, actually, at the time, beckoning from across the Aegean. It was a Greek. And suddenly it's his job to go and preach to the Greeks. Now, St. Peter couldn't do this because St. Peter didn't speak Greek. But St. Paul did go, and he went, and he went to the Areopagus, which is the Philosophical Society, and he gave a speech. And he said, you know, this man, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, yeah, okay, well, we'll talk about that some other time, and they all walked out. He gave the wrong speech. That was not the speech he should have given. He, he could have given that speech better in Ephesus because he was talking about idols, and idols were a big business in Ephesus. And I think St. John knew about that failure, and he had to write the gospel with that in mind. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not going to begin by telling you the genealogy of Jesus Christ uh, because you, won't un you don't know these people anyway. What difference does it make? But I'm I'm going to right. begin I'm going to begin with a metaphysical prologue, and that they understood. And I think if Saint Paul had begun that way, if he walked into that room at the Areopagus and said "Ein Arche, Ein Halogos, Kai Logos, Ein Prostheon, Kai Logos, Ein Theos," he could have started a discussion right there, right off the bat. And I think that's why that gospel became so important. Wow. Wow. I hope we get a lot of views on this video and people can unpack everything you just said, Doctor. How does this relate to—we've we, been living, by my estimation, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we've been living through a 700-year war on reality. How—your book deals with reality, the ultimate reality. Um <laughs> Is, is this the final word in, in reality? And how can we fight the surrealists and, and the anti-realists of today? Why, why do you say 700 years? What, what happened 700 years ago? What are you talking about? The, the, the beginning of modernism, you trace it back. I mean, you, you can I, some people start with Descartes. You mentioned English empiricism. Um, th there's a philosophical strain of thought to, to just distrust your senses, let's say, Distrust what your eyes and ears are actually telling you, um, but but there's no doubt that we're living through a, a war on reality. And um, depending on where you 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 place the start date, I mean your book your book brings it home, doesn't it? War on logos. Logos is the ultimate reality. Sure. There is the the temptation was there in the Garden of Eden, where basically uh, you want to have it on your terms. You want to be able to uh, distinguish between good and evil. You want to be the ultimate arbiter. You want to be—I just, I just did a, a review of a book by a guy, uh, academic, David Hawks. The book is called The, uh, uh, the, the Reign of Anti-Logos, and he's complaining about the state of academe right now, uh, taken over by uh, deconstructors, gender ideologues, critical race theory, all of these things. What do they have in common? Uh, War on being. Let's just say he, he talks about performative speech, uh, which is basically if uh, when, the, the, when the priest says, I now pronounce you man and wife. OK, that you're now man and wife because he said so. Uh, what these people are saying is uh, everything is performative speech and I have the power, the unbridled uh, power. Now, the classic example of performative speech is God saying, uh, we just read it in Mass uh, just a day or two ago, God said, uh, let there be light, and there was light. 
So if God says it, it happens. If you say it, well, that's different. You know, uh, you can have certain instances where it does, but it doesn't work that way. Well, now these people are trying to arrogate to themselves that attribute of God. In other words, the, the, the where it's really taken up home is in uh, gender, the gender studies program. And basically what they're saying is that there's no such thing as male or female biological sex, or that even if you admit that, it's completely malleable and it has no meaning other than the meaning you give to it. That is the ultimate war on being, okay? There's a, there's a, a, a Jewish variant of this, uh, Jacques Derrida, the uh, French philosopher, uh, would talk about uh, the, when everything became discourse, Everything became discourse. There's no reality outside of language. Uh, there's no referent. Uh, everything is discourse. All of these are attacks on being. And the, they are all covert attacks on God because God is self-subsistent being. They want to arrogate to themselves that power. That's what Eve did in the Garden of Eden. And these are the, the descendants of Eve. So you're okay. So you're saying that the, really the assault on ultimate reality started with the fall, with the original sin, right? You have the hegemony over reality. Well, this has been cons. This the Supreme Court decision, Justice Kennedy and Planned mm -hmm. Parenthood versus Casey. Yeah. It's called it's called the mystery clause, where suddenly he's saying we all have a right to determine being. Well, no, we don't. What 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 have, what have you been smoking? Right. Uh, your, your <laughs> it's kind of like in Roe when they say that uh, all human beings have a right to determine their own, what their, their definition of happiness. Well, what you're saying, no, that, that, that's what they're saying. And they give, they have to give the illusion that there's some type of democratic right here that is being spread around. When you, as soon as you take a step away from Logos, as soon as you take, take a step away and think you have freedom from nature, what you're doing is handing over your control of your own life to the rich and the powerful because they are the ones who are going to exercise that right. And if you think you've got that right too, you're fooling yourself. Mm -hmm. Doctor, um, I've got the logo of your book pulled up. And um, folks know where they can go to get it. What else would you like people to know before we head into the lightning round? Just a smattering of random questions for you. What else would you like people to know about Logos Rising? This is, with, we are now uh, living in uh, scientific, under scientific tyranny. The COVID virus is scientific tyranny. These are people who show up and they say, listen, I'm a scientist. Uh, so therefore, you have to do what I say. And then he spouts the most irrational type of nonsense. And you have to accept it because he claimed he was a scientist. Logos Rising was written uh, with that in mind, even though it was written before the COVID crisis hit, because people like Bertrand Russell uh, or Carl Sagan, they got a telescope and they're looking out there and that gives them access to ultimate reality. No, that's not ultimate reality. It's not little balls bumping into each other. It's not the planets. It's Logos. And you have access to Logos because you're a rational creature and you can make judgments. So when you have suddenly two scientists telling you two completely different things, you don't have to panic because you have reason and you can make up your judge, uh, judgment. And even if everybody in the mainstream media is telling you that this man by the name of Fauci knows what he's saying, you have mm -hmm. Logos and you can discern that that's not the case. 
because you, if you follow Logos, you are in contact with ultimate reality, and no one can shake you. All right. Um, Logos Rising, you can find it on culturewars.com. You can, uh, you, I think you can find it on Amazon as well, but... Um, nope, you have to go to culturewars.com. You have to go to culturewars. All right, all right, forgive me. You have to go to culturewars. That's how I got my copy here, which you can see uh, with some notes in it and some questions. I'm going to subject you to a 30-second commercial because RTF just uh, received a huge shipment of awesome goods from more uh, from Glory and Shine. And my wife was literally just upstairs right before we were doing this, Doctor, and she was looking at these soaps. It's made by Catholics. They've got quotes from Aquinas. Here it is, 30 seconds, then we'll get to the lightning round of questions. And it's not working. All right, well, I guess that's not going to happen. And that is perfectly okay. All right, Doctor. Um, we've had so many questions given in advance that are unrelated to Logos Rising. I want to get to them. Um, people want to know where you stand in 2021 on a variety of things. Um, there are some live questions coming in the chat right now. We have more than 250 people watching us live, and many thousands more will watch after the fact. I have some that were submitted to me before the live questions, so I will read a couple of those to you. First off, um, do you think that Russia has been consecrated? Yes. Why do you think that? Uh, because it's a Christian country now, unlike the United States of America. They have, the, uh, they have officially uh, made the Russian Orthodox Church, the official established church of Russia. The churches are open. Catholic churches are open. They're, uh, my, my, son, my oldest son went and worked on one of those Catholic churches in Vladivostok and brought a wife back with him. So, yeah, I think the consecration has taken place, and I think Russia is a Christian country. Okay. Uh, given the state of things, including the hackable digital world that we live in, and there's a certain word I can't say here, but do you think that there is any hope in the United States of ever uh, voting our way out of this mess that we're in? No. No. What do you think is the ideal form of government for the United States and for humanity at large? I think that the government that we had here was adequate to the task, but uh, it, it was created by people who were smarter than we are. And one of them was John Adams. And he said, we have no, uh, we have no constitution that functions in the absence of a moral people. That was the crucial issue for democracy, if you wanted to call this democracy. If you can't rule your own uh, passions, you'd have no right to call uh, uh, to live in a democracy. Mm -hmm. The founding fathers understood that. And there was a certain group that came over here and we gave them, uh, welcomed them to our shores. And they spent the entire time undermining the morals of the American people because yeah. they controlled certain crucial technologies like film, uh, sure. motion pictures, so on and so forth. So uh, that just proved John Adams' point. You can't allow people to have this ruthless undermining of the moral fabric of the country and not expect tyrannical consequences to flow from that. Yeah, and if you want to hear more about Dr. Jones's opinions on that, I know you've talked extensively about the code of uh, decency in Hollywood and on other channels and, and, that, and the specific group of people who have opposed that. What do you think, Doctor, about um, what... Uh, <sighs> your neighbor, basically, uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, heading to the Department of Transportation. Is he going to lock down the, high, the interstates now if you don't wear a mask or something? 
I, I was just thinking of our uh, former mayor, okay? Uh, when I moved here to South Bend, Indiana, I bought a, a nice house, affordable house uh, on a nice street lined with trees, and it had a back alley. And the back alley had a purpose. It was basically where you put the trash can. And the, the people, they, uh, the trash truck would pull up. They had two guys on the back. They would empty your trash can, take them a couple seconds, and they go on. So there are people, three guys earning a living by picking up your trash, okay? <laughs> Our mayor comes, and uh, he's got, he's always the brightest guy in the room. He's always got this bright idea. So what he ends up doing is scrapping, throwing all those mostly black people out of work, can't pick up trash anymore and instituting a trash truck that picks up your trash can with a, a, a mechanical arm and dumps it. Now, the problem is you have to wheel your trash can to the street now. OK, now, why did he do this? Well, because he doesn't understand design. Why doesn't he understand design? Because he's a homosexual. If he understood design, he would not he would not be involved in the type of sexual activity that he's involved in. OK. I said uh, anyone who uh, anyone who believes that the anus is a sex organ should not be determining uh, how we pick up our trash. That's <laughs> right. going to be generalized. So so basically, Pete has gone on. He's a legend in his own mind. And yeah. we are stuck now. There's about two feet of snow on the ground. And now you have to drag that trash bin down to the street. Uh, older people uh, can't do it. Uh, but that's not his problem. This is what the type of thing that we're going to probably see as is uh, when he be, now that he's uh, uh, secretary of transportation. Yeah. Um, OK, this is an easy one, I hope. What's your favorite cocktail and what's your favorite whiskey? <laughs> Why do you ask me questions like this? <laughs> I can't answer that question. OK, that's fine. <laughs> um, I. Clearly, I think we're all on the same page about the COVID-19 hysteria. It's certainly being overblown. Um, do you think that the biosurveillance state is just an extension, a continuation of the anti-terrorism sort of surveillance state that was started after 9-11? Yes. Yes, it's clear. It's clear. It's, it's, uh, Naomi Klein wrote a book called Shock Doctrine. It's about uh, never let a crisis go to waste. What you do is uh, either there's a natural occurring crisis, you rush in and then you readjust everything. This is what the Great Reset is all about. This talk about, you know, build back better. That, I think this crisis was orchestrated. I think that it was the, uh, the COVID was created in a laboratory and it either escaped uh, accidentally or it was released on purpose. But now once it got out, the oligarchs were ready. There was a study that had been done at Harvard uh, about what to do during this thing. And the crisis is being exploited now uh, to basically bring about changes that no one would have ever uh, tolerated if it weren't for some type of absolute uh, medical emergency, which is the way this being is being portrayed. Right. Um, what do you think about the uh, I'm going to I'm going to call them um, experimental experimental pokes. What do you think about them? Are they are any of them moral in your point of view? Experimental what? Well, the pokes, the jabs, you know, the uh, the uh, the medicines that they want to inject into your body right oh, now. Oh, you mean the vaccines? That's what I mean. I th I think that what the the rule right now is that COVID uh, was uh, played up 
mm-hmm. uh, made to seem worse than it actually was. And their, the uh, reaction, the results of the vaccine, the vaccine is being made to seem less dangerous than it really is. No one knows. No one knows. There are people like uh, Robert Kennedy is talking about uh, how this uh, vaccine, they, they rush these vaccines in, they test them on ferrets, they, ferrets get immune, everything's fine until the natural disease comes along and suddenly they're more susceptible than they were before, that type of thing. These people that are promoting this, like Bill Gates, have a horrendous tracks record of using uh, Africans and Indians as human guinea pigs, uh, putting uh, sterilizing people uh, in the under the guise of uh, and immunizing them against diseases. Uh, to the point where the Kenyan bishops told uh, the Catholics of Kenya, "Don't uh, don't get vaccinated. You can't yeah. trust these people." Yeah, uh, and there's certainly a history in Africa, so uh, they are rightly on guard. Um, doctor, the world witnessed the historic lockdowns of the Catholic Church in 2020. Uh, some people have documented, I've documented on this channel, how the Catholic Church was paid to shut down three and a half billion dollars by my count. Um, to remain closed. Churches committed to the traditional Latin Mass, however, tended to stay open in some capacity. They were either open, or they were partially open, or they were underground, but either way, the traditional sacraments were available to people. A lot of people, Dr. E. Michael Jones, want to know in 2021, post-lockdown, what your thoughts are on the traditional Latin Mass and the Society of St. Pius X. Uh, The Society of Pius X is in schism. Uh, I've said this many times, uh, when Ratzinger lifted the excommunications on the four bishops, I flew to England, to Wimbledon, and met with Bishop Williamson uh, just to tell him to, it's time to end the schism. Okay, the, the Rome made that gesture. I think you need to reciprocate. I got to the, the headquarters of the SSPX, and before I, I walked in the door and the first thing that Bishop Williamson tells me before I even opened my mouth is he got a letter uh, from Rome saying, I accept Vatican II in the light of tradition. I said, well, go sign it. Who could argue with that? And he said to me, well, as a matter of fact, Archbishop Lefebvre would have signed that. So I, you're telling me you're not going to sign it, even though the bishop. And so we spent three hours basically going round and round and round, and him explaining to me why he was not going to sign that letter, which would have ended the schism. If there weren't a schism, he wouldn't have gotten the letter. Okay, it would have. And then so that uh, he didn't do it. Uh, the and then he got expelled from the, the Society of Pius X because I, I don't know the details of that, but I, I suspect he's got some type of death wish. He wants to die outside of the Catholic Church. I don't know. It's too deep for me. But I always liked the guy. He stayed at my house a number of times. He invited me to speak at the uh, SSPX seminary in in, uh, Winona. I talked Mm -hmm. about horror movies up there. Uh, I had a a congenial relationship, and I thought we could come to some type of uh, agreement on that, but it, it failed. So I'm sorry I did my best. What about the first part of the question, Doctor? Just your your thoughts on the Latin Mass in general. The Latin, so if you're asking me why uh, they are flourishing now, it's because the Latin Mass is countercultural. And you've got a, peop- a group of people who are naturally suspicious of the conventional narrative. That's why they're going to the Latin Mass. It's a reaction to all of this uh, that, is, that has happened in the church. Now, I have nothing against that. I have nothing against it, okay? But I'm going to tell you my experience, okay? I was, uh, when I first started the magazine, 
uh, I was taken to dinner by a guy who was a big promoter of the Latin Mass, a guy who's always been good to me. And he said basically that nothing's going to change until we go back to the Latin Mass. And I thought this is one of the craziest things I've ever heard in my life. So what are you saying? If we call, if I have the Latin Mass, I don't have to do research into urban renewal. Is that what you're saying? Uh, because that's the opposite. If that's what you mean by the Latin Mass as some type of alternative to doing intellectual work, then it's not a good thing. And I think that that's a lot in many ways the way it was used. So you had a group of Catholics in New York who were very strong in this regard. They even started a magazine with that name. Uh, but, you know, there's a group in New York City that is a really very powerful group there that uh, has been controlling politics, not just in New York City, but nationally. And no one seems to be able to mention their name. Uh, but, well, let's talk about the Latin Mass as a way of avoiding bigger issues. If that's what you mean by the Latin Mass, then it's not a good thing. Copy. Um, we have tons of live stream questions coming in. I have a couple that were submitted in advance that I want to get through, one of which is um, just being mindful that there are simply things that we cannot say on YouTube right now. I just wonder if you think that the events of the epiphany uh, were indeed a false flag or if that was real. Uh, the You mean the uh, at the Capitol? Yes, sir. Uh, that was a a black op. Okay. So, uh, basically what you had was, uh, the capital being left, uh, defenseless. Okay. Uh, and the March, which was basic, I know people who went, these are people who were Trump supporters. They felt that the election had been stolen. They felt that there was a need to protest, to express their views. And they were captured by a group of people who used them as a weapon to uh, basically discredit their whole operation. So there were people, the, the, the Capitol Police let these people into the, into the Capitol because they knew they could then use them as an excuse to discredit the whole crowd. I've, I've said this before, but I was involved in a march in, uh, when uh, Nixon invaded Cambodia. We marched down to Center City, Philadelphia, through Belmont Plateau, Fairmount Park, and suddenly we're marching along. Some of these guys run out of the bushes carrying Viet Cong flags. And they went to the front of the uh, the march. And suddenly we're all marching behind them. They were all communists. I knew them. They were lived in my apartment building. I knew mm -hmm. who they were. I knew mm -hmm. what they were doing. And we were powerless to stop it. The same thing happened here. What you have was a, base, uh, a group of people who were led into a trap. That happened weeks before in uh, Germany, in Berlin in particular. They had huge anti-COVID lockdown protests. And then one group, small group, breaks into the Bundestag. It's the exact same thing that happened in Washington. And yeah. then that was used to, to call the entire group of people who were protesting against COVID. They're all terrorists now. Yeah. Because this is what this is the way the media spins it. Um, OK, agreed, uh, Dr. Violet, for what for whatever it's worth. Um, I want to go into international politics real quick. You mentioned some anecdotes in the book, both about your travels in India and in Persia. What In Persia in particular, what are Americans missing about the Persians? Are they really our enemy? Um, should we be opposed to the, to the Iran deal? What, can you peel that back for us a little bit? Yes, I was in 
uh, Iran. I was marching in a with three million people in celebration of the revolution of 1979. I'm the only guy in Tehran of five million people who's <laughs> wearing a tie. Uh, I kind of stand out in the crowd because of that. And I'm surrounded by women in chatter. And uh, I said to my, they're all chanting something. And I said to my translator, what are they saying? And he said, death to America. Okay. And I look around and so some finally someone comes up to me and says to me, are you an American? And I was thinking of saying, maybe I should say I'm a Canadian, you know, but I said, yes, I'm an American. And they said, I'd really like to come to America. So what you have is this phenomenon here of people who are fundamentally, it's amazing to think this, but the Iranians actually like Americans. I don't know why they do this. After all that we have done to them, there is still this kind of residual openness. Now, part of it is the whole Persian mentality. They're the most hospitable and polite people on the face of the earth. Okay, And they have a really good understanding that just because you have a government that pursues these policies doesn't mean you agree with those policies. And so what we've seen here is the abuse, the miserable abuse of the Iranian people because of one factor, namely yeah. the Israel lobby. The sure. Israel lobby dominates our foreign policy, and they are the ones that have created this debacle in Iran, and they have alienated two groups of people, namely the American people and the Iranian people, who would get along fine if it weren't for this interference and constant uh, harassment. Um, there's some people in the live chat who are trying to respond to the, my first question, whether or not Russia has been consecrated. They're saying things, doctor, like, um, uh, you know, Russia is orthodox. They're in schism. Um, how can you say that the, that the consecration took place when Our Lady explicitly promised Our Lady of Fatima that there'd be a period of world peace and we're certainly not living in a peace era, um, so they're, they're pushing back against you. What would you say to all those people right now? You're Fatima fundamentalist. That's the problem here. You're applying it to something that cannot, where it cannot be applied. It was a time, this is, Fatima was about communism. That's what it was about. Okay. And there are people who say, well, the blessed mother said Russia will spread her errors. She didn't say the Soviet Union will spread her errors. She said Russia well, she had to say Russia because nobody knew what the Soviet Union was. Certainly three, three, uh, three illiterate peasant children in Portugal are not going to know what the Soviet Union was. They wouldn't even be able to have repeated the word. So mm -hmm. we're talking about a particular period in time when a country was captured by a certain group of people uh, who seem to have captured our country as well. OK, and they suffered. The Russian people suffered at their hands and then it ended. Now, maybe it could have had a better ending, okay? Maybe it could have had if we, if we had done things differently, if we'd done it in a different time frame. But the fact remains that Russia is a Christian country. Now, okay, uh, I'm sh there is a difference between the Russian Orthodox and the Catholic. I'm not denying that. But they, yeah. are, both, they are both apostolic uh, churches. They, we're not talking about Protestants here. We're talking about the Orthodox who go all the way back to the— to the same roots uh, that we have, and they're Christian. And that's more than we can say about ourselves. And if you persist in this kind of Fatima fundamentalism, you will get instrumentalized 
as was happening not too long ago, because now we want to the same group of people that uh, created the mess in the Middle East are now trying to wage war against Russia because their parents and grandparents came from Russia and they don't like them. And you will become a proxy warrior for that group of people by attacking Russia as somehow Russians are intrinsically bad people. That's where this leads. Um, final kind of question that is the synthesis of a bunch of things. A lot of homeschooling moms tune into restoring the faith. A lot of people are are grappling with part, the first part of our discussion, Dr. E. Michael Jones, editor of Culture Wars. And they're saying to themselves, oh, my goodness, you know, I've got children who have to work in the workplace in the world. And the American viewpoint is that they need to go to college in order to get a good job. And E. Michael Jones just said, you know, no Catholic college is safe for them. Um, can you can you speak a little bit about homeschooling? Did you homeschool? What are your thoughts on homeschooling? And then trade schools as well. Um, and then maybe just go uh, into a greater detail as to, you know, it, uh, would you just avoid Catholic universities in general? Uh, I have five children. Okay, the, we tried homeschooling with the oldest. Uh, it was a disaster. Okay, it was a disaster because he was, there's a big space between number one and number two. Uh, and uh, he felt isolated and so on and so forth. It didn't work. Okay, so then we said, okay, all right, we'll go to the schools. And uh, by the time, you know, we got down to the last three, the last three came after a series of miscarriages and so on and so forth. But they were all together and they grew up all together. And as a result, it was a completely different configuration. And so when we tried homeschooling with them, it really worked well. It really worked well with those three uh, because they were together. And my wife, who was educated as a teacher, was realized she was doing as much time helping with her homework as she could have done with a curriculum she agreed with. So she did that. Uh, another factor that also helped in this regard was uh, ballet. My uh, daughter, uh, uh, Sarah, started dancing, and then she dragged my youngest son, Sam, into the ballet. And it was after school. You could go there. It was exercise. It was art. It was just a great combination, a perfect complement for, for uh, homeschooling. So it's going to depend on the circumstances. It's going to depend on the circumstances. You, you, you you can't make a, a kind of blanket command and say you must do. You're going to have to the parents are going to have to make this decision based on circumstances. I think the ideal situation would be a good school. Uh, if you can't find a good school and you have the wherewithal and you can do it, then I, I, yeah, it can be successful. Homeschooling can be successful. Copy. Dr. E. Michael Jones, author of Logos Rising. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I hope I hope you can find some time to come back on the show. I want to talk to you. Others have, have asked if I could do a, a deliberate interview just with you about Baron Metal, which is of particular interest to me um, as well. So I, I would hope that you agree to it. I don't want to ask you on air or whatever. But um, thank you so much for joining us. Editor of Culture Wars, culturewars.com. Find E. Michael Jones on culturewars.com. You can subscribe to the, the, the publication and you can buy all your books there. It's been a pleasure, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure was all mine.